0: Welcome to episode number 70 of the Birding Knife Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host in the podcast where you discover birds and the people that pursue them. This week's guest is a young birding extraordinaire, Zach Simpson. In the episode, we'll be looking at what the thrill is around twitching and specifically why it is so attractive to younger birders. Zach shares some of his own stories from the twitches he has been on as well as the special birds he has discovered on his own home patch. As always, The Birding Knife is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the BirdLasser bird logging app. Spot, plot, play a part, download, and install the app to play your part in social conservation. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others to find the show. Please also tell others you know about the show, If you'd like to contribute to help cover the costs associated with hosting the show, you can click on the link in the comments section of this episode and buy us a coffee or two. So without further ado, let's hear from today's guest, Zach Simpson. So, Zach, I want to welcome you to the show. It's good to have you on finally. I know you've been on the Youth Podcast quite a few times, but it's really great to have you on the show. But to start with, I'm going to give you a question that was not on your questions. You don't mind me sharing a little bit of an embarrassing moment from your, your birding journey.
1: No, that sounds okay. Go for it.
0: I remember the first time I met you, you were on a pelagic, and, you know, one of the, the, one of the birds we got to see was a uh, grey petrel. I remember, like, climbing over the front of the deck, chasing after the bird. But I remember the first time I ever met you, The thing I remember about that trip, more than the grey petrel, is that you were leaning over the side of the boat, spewing your guts into the sea. I think we got a whole lot of birds because of the chum that you were making.
1: No, I remember that really well. It's one of my fondest pelagic memories, even though I was cotching my lungs out. Such a great bird, grey petrel. I mean, what I'd do is just see another one in KZN. I mean, it's sub-region rarity, let alone KZN. It's a real privilege to have seen that bird. It was a great experience.
0: Yeah. So what I've done subsequently since then is every time I get these really hectic sea videos of these boats going all over these big cruise ships, I send it to Zach because I'm trying to like get Zach a little bit scared before we go to Flock to Marion. I'm really like, ah, we need to have camera equipment to see if you vomit on the Flock to on the Flock to Marion trip.
1: Yeah. No. I've 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 been working. I've been working at it. Um. I've done quite a few pelagic subsequently, and I've tried to. Just get my mind frame and my mindset right for it and i'm really hoping that flock goes well i mean i don't feel like eight days of nausea but it's going to be it's going to be absolutely insane and i'll have my meds with me so
0: i'm sure things will will go as planned what's interesting about your your journey is that i think you grew up on a you grew up on a farm but none of your family are birders yet the bird, the birding bug has bit you so tell us a little bit about, I know you've shared the story on the, the Youth Birding Podcast and on, other, on, and on other platforms, but tell us a little bit about how you got into birding.
1: Yeah, so um, my grandparents were always sort of their, I would call them back garden birders. They always had their binoculars nearby or that my grandfather feeds his birds. So he showed a little bit of interest. And a couple of years ago, probably going in five years ago, we went to Kruger with my grandparents and I spent a majority of the time with them. And they were—they showed some interest, and they were looking at birds. And I was thinking, what are these people doing? And and I had the Kruger map book with me. And at the back, I'm sure a lot of you know that there's there's a whole lot of um, illustrations of some of the more common species that you get in Kruger. And I was going around ticking all the mammals. And then after a while, the mammals started to dry down. And then I thought, okay, well, hang on, I should start ticking off the birds. So I started ticking off the birds. And after a while, I got you know more and more interested. My grandparents were helping me out, and. And yeah, that's sort of where it grew. And then when I got back home, I compiled the official list of the birds that I had seen on the trip. So Kanda Kruger was the first place that I ticked birds. And then a little while later, my my uncle's a reformed birder. He used to bird in his young age, um, but now he's had kids, so... It slowed down, although one of his kids has started to bird, so it's hopefully going to pick up a bit. Yeah, then I went birding with him a little bit, and that really just, that's when the bug bit. Eh?
0: So something about you, which a lot of people know about you, if they have birded with you, is you're a fantastic birder, and you are really phenomenal at identification and calls and that kind of thing. But let me ask you this. What is your most embarrassing misidentification?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm just trying to think now. Um I don't know if I've had any bad like misidentification like things that i can think of but there are a couple of times where i've been on pelagics and that and with me i'm always if you know me well you know that i'm always expecting the the absolute rarest thing that we could possibly get it's just the way i like to bird and check every every wayder and that you know looking for that rare redneck stint or temex stint or something different so a couple of times in pelagics there's been like the one okay well the one time i was on the pelagic and I saw this bird and it was right at the beginning when I first started to enjoy my pelagic birding and that. And I didn't know too much. And this albatross came past and I photographed it, but it was far back. So no one else really looked at it. And when I first saw it, I, the first thing I saw was just a dark gray head. So immediately, me not knowing what I'm doing, I'm thinking gray-headed albatross. So I start shouting, shoot that bird. In other words, take photographs of the bird. And Neil Perrins is in the cabin. So I ran inside to him. He's so excited. What is this bird? And I show him the picture, and there's one looking like juvenile shy albatross. And I was like, flap, you know, but that's how we, we live and learn. And that was probably my most embarrassing moment. There were guys sleeping all over the, the, the boat, and they were all awake trying to find this bird that I've been shouting about. And anyway, I will never make that mistake again. Great albatross got the all dark underwing, a juvenile. So yeah,
0: that was a bad one. I remember that first pelagic we went on. You were so prepared when you got into the uh, when you got onto that onto that boat. So, how does that preparation process look like? Whether it be for a trip for a trip or for a twitch, how does your preparation process look like as a birder?
1: Yeah, so I, I like to be prepared for for things, especially when I'm going to areas that I've never experienced and never birded, and just that I don't miss things. You know, I hate I hate getting home and you've been on a twitch and you like you find out that there was you know a really cool bird right there. And in that area, and you you completely missed it. And I'll give you an example. On a recent twitch up into the Kruger, I later subsequently found that there was white-crowned lapwings on the river right near the twitch. And I was hoping to see one, but I thought you had to go further north. And Trevor Hardacker saw some flying along the estuary, I mean, the, the river. So if I had known, I would have looked out for them. So I, I would spend, I normally spend time just sifting through books and that and chatting to people about what birds to get in that area. If it's a pelagic, looking at previous pelagics for the last sort of 10 years, what they've got in those times of the year, just let so you know what you can expect. And, you know, if something unusual does pop in, you know, it's like, okay, well, this has been seen at this time of the year, so it could be that. And it's just nice to be prepared for, you know, those rarer things.
0: And every birder loves bird books. I mean, I think every birder has a, a, a fantastic Um, collection of bird books on their bookshelf. So what are some of your favorite bird books, some of your go-to bird books on your bookshelf?
1: Well, I must say, I had a look now and uh, I would say that it's a little bit unusual, but my... The Roberts geographical variation is probably at the top of my list. Yeah, I, I really enjoy looking at different subspecies of birds and, you know, where they are found. And I find that quite interesting, especially when, you know, you're birding in an area that you've birded a lot before and there's no new species to find, but there's always, diff- you know, different subspecies and you can look at the different subspecies and the morphological differences, even though a lot of them are pretty much identical, but that's, that's nice. And then the South African bird finders, often as you were asking about how I prepare, that's A way that I will have a look. I'll have a look at that book and see what birds are likely to be seen in the area. And then the guide to the birds of the seabirds of Southern Africa is also really one of my favorite. I spend a lot of time reading through that and especially now for Marion.
0: So You've been on a lot of really fantastic twitches lately. Anyone who follows your your social media accounts, and I'll put those links into the comment section at the end of the in, in the comment section of this podcast. But anyone who follows you on social media would know that you've been on some really fantastic twitches lately. So, firstly, um, let's let's make this podcast accessible for people that are, are maybe not birders who have never heard about twitching. So, how would you describe what is a twitch? Well, I
1: suppose a Twitch would be different to normal birding. You're not just going out to see what you can find. A Twitch will sort of be an organized trip to look for a specific species in a certain area that's been seen by somebody else. Yeah, and generally it's organized. It's often quite like off the cuff. You know, it's like you hear about it the next morning, you're going missing a day of school and really hoping to find that specific species and then also to see what else you can get in the area. But often it's to find that specific species to get it on that region list or on yeah. That's that's what I would say.
0: Yeah, so I, I've spoken to non-birders before, and I remember I went for the I, one of the birds I did get to twitch was the Malagasy pond heron uh, a few years back, and we left at like two o'clock in the morning. And when I told my non-birding friends that I'm driving up into Zululand, land, leaving at two o'clock in the morning, and I think we got back at ten o'clock that night, it was like they looked at me with absolute horror and like what the hell. So yeah, I want I want to ask you, what is it that makes a Twitch so exciting? Why why get in a car and travel four hours to see a bird? And let 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 me just say this yeah. I mean, there are there are birds that you've traveled to see that are the most boring looking birds on planet earth yet you'll get in a car for four hours and you're not going after a, an african pitta that's got like fantastic colors you're chasing after an lbj a little brown job what what does it that makes twitch twitching so important because i can tell you any non-birder listening they would say what the hell you're chasing after a little brown bird why yeah i
1: think there's a number of reasons um firstly and everyone's sort of mind i think goes to that is that it's for the tech. You generally want to, for me, I'm a KZN lister and a lot of birds, I really would love to get 600 in KZN. So that's the goal is to get that and every bird counts. So you'll twitch species like that. But also there's there's so many other things that make twitching so exciting. And I mean, I remember the white cheek turn twitch at Imploti Lagoon. There were so many birders. There were probably close on 200 birders that cycled through there even more. And it's just, I got to meet people like Trevor Hardacker and there were just awesome people you meeting them, getting to know them, chatting, and I mean, I, I think I went down four or five times to see that bird, and I mean, it wasn't all it wasn't to see the bird on the you know third and fourth time. It was to chat to people and meet people, and and that's also what it's about. It's about community and meeting people, and it's really it's really awesome.
0: And I think it's I think what people also. You know, don't forget, I can often, or people don't realize, I often can remember like that Malagasy Pond Heron. And honestly, people can hate me for what I'm about to say right now. It was not the most fantastic bird to see, but there was a thrill about getting to tick the bird on the list and a bird that is not common in the region. I can still remember stopping at the the garage on the side road and buying an, a coffee early in the morning. The people I went with, I can remember the people we went with. I can remember driving into the reserve and the first thing we saw in the morning was a cheetah walking along the side of the fence. And and I often think with birding and twitching and that it's not the it's it's the bird, yes, but I think what makes a twitch so exciting is not just the bird it's what surrounds the bird like you said the people you get to meet the experiences you get to have i think all of that together is what makes twitching and even birding as a whole so fantastic
1: yeah i agree 100 percent. then you know it's just it's so amazing because you know you're rushing off to see these birds all over you know going to look for lesser white throats and and marlith park and you get to see some places that you never ever get to unless you were twitching a bird so it's like you find yourself in these most incredible places. I mean, I remember going to look for great snipe um, at Lake Sabaya, and I mean, I, Lake Sabaya was way off the radar for me until I heard there was a great snipe that had been seen there. And when we got there, um, there weren't there weren't a lot of there weren't no people. It was just my group, and we spent some we spent about the morning there. But Lake Sabaya, it was just incredible to see the absolute beauty of that place. I mean, the lake was crystal clear; it was like glass. Now even and people will cringe when I say this, but I even went for a little swim. I mean, it was like 200, 300 meters of shallow, clear, crystal clear water. You could see for hundred meters in every direction. And, you know, it, it was just such an awesome privilege. So wild. And then you've got that beautiful coastal forest. I mean, it's just it's such a privilege. And that is why I was there. I was there to find a great snipe, but I also experienced some incredible stuff. Beautiful scenery, a really good time with my friends. And it was was great.
0: I want to ask you a bit of a strange question. Here's, here's what I, I thought about. You know, we, off, we always talk about what is your favorite place to go and bird and that kind of thing. And honestly, can I can, I just was thinking about this the other day. I actually hate birding at sewage works. I know birders are like, oh my word, they love them. I like the birds you get to see there. But I hate the experience. I mean, who wants to walk around and poo for a day? And I know like guys are like, oh my word, I can't wait to go to Darval's, Darval to go and bird. I, hate go- I actually hate birding at Darval. Um I know there's great birds there and I, I know birders are gonna be like, oh my word, how can you say that? You know, let's ask you the question what is your least favorite place to bird? The- I know there has to be a place you go and bird just because of the birds you get to see. Which place don't you really enjoy birding at, but you'll go there because it might give you another another tick on your list?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, works would definitely be in the in the running there. Um, I mean, you go to a place like Davos, particularly Davos, it keeps on turning up these great birds. I mean, pearl-breasted swallow, we uh, Adam Riley's had there, which is amazing case in species. In the past, there's even been red rum swallow, and there's been all sorts of wader rarities, spotted crakes, balin's crakes. Um, so it turns up all these weird things, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's really a, not a nice place to bird. It's overgrown, trying to walk through there, and there are flies everywhere. Sometimes it's, you know, it's dreadful. But, you know, like I think sometimes we, we put ourselves through a bit of hardship to, to be able to see the birds. And this reminds me of a time where you and I, Adam, like you, I'm sure you'll remember, we, we climbed up Mount um, Curry in, in Cockstatt. And we were we, we walked for hours and it was very very hot and and we we got cut full eventually but we got get to the top and we're sitting there and we get to see bearded vultures flying on the you know the valley across there and it, it was just it was such a cool experience. I remember I saw my first rock kestrel there with you quite a few years ago, you know. But it's like sometimes you got to endure that hardship and you get such cool rewards. You know, beautiful scenery and once in beautiful birds. So yeah,
0: I think that's what birding is about
1: seeing new places even if they're not the most comfortable
0: yeah i remember that literally if you you know the mountain it doesn't look that impressive that that high up from far but when you've walked 26 odd kilometers up and down it it is Terrible. And I and, and here's the worst part. We didn't take any 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 liquids with us. We literally walked up it and we did this hike without any water, nothing to drink. I think by the time I came down, I just I, my mouth was so dry, I just wanted to faint. Uh yeah, it was a fantastic place to bird. It's one of my favorite places to bird. But if you're gonna do the walk, make sure you got liquids with you because it's not it's not a wise idea to do it without any any anything to drink. Yeah, so one of the places that is one of your favorite places to bird is in uh, is at your farm at, at in Harding. It's a really fantastic place. I know you, during lockdown last year, you got to see some really fantastic species. You found um, a spot for blue swallow. Um, you got so many fantastic birds. Tell us a little bit about the birding on the farm before we get back into the twitching story. That's that like your your home patch. Tell us about the fantastic birding that your farm has to offer.
1: Yeah, so Harding is a, it's a really cool area, even though it's a lot of it's timber, but it ranges from some sort of almost coastal forest. So there's, there's spots where I've heard knives and woodpecker, and there's even gorgeous bush rock, which is quite far south Or gorgeous bush rock, right up into misspelled forests and misspelled grasslands, and then up even into mountains, and where I'm hoping to find bearded vultures. Um, it's sort of same elevation as Mount Curry or maybe a little bit lower, but you know, in Gaeli Mountains, so it's it's really cool. But, you know, there's some great things I found um about f- five African grass owls in a flay um, which was really a cool privilege to be able to find and I've I've been checking up on them. There's I saw one there the other day which was you know, I'm glad to know they're still around. Um I had um ten blue swallows, d- different individual blue swallows in a day, six at one site and then four at another site. But however, the one site with the four blue swallows, I don't think they were breeding there. It was just a small little valley surrounded by timber. So I think they were breeding over the ridge somewhere. It's interesting to go and find when they're breeding there. But yeah, I've also had some cool rarities there. I mean, um, two years ago in December, I had a great had a kingfish on the farm, which was really, really great. My first sort of reportable rarity. And then just after lockdown last year, I had a pectoral sandpiper on the farm dam, which was also that generated a bit of excitement. I had a couple of people coming down the next day. So, yeah, I mean, there's cape parrots, beautiful mistbelt forest birding. Um, yeah, so
0: that's really, really cool. So, like I said earlier, in regards to twitches, you've been in some really fantastic twitches lately. Um, you've got a whole list, a long list of twitches you can tell us about. But tell us about some of the recent successful twitches you have been on.
1: Yeah, so just quick, like this year, um, two of the major ones, or well, actually three, I've sort of three seen three mega you know, if you want to class at that for Southern Africa. Um, the first one was um, Madagascan cuckoo, which I got at Lathui early on this year. Um, and then white cheek turn, which is a great one. And it was in January. Um, and then one of the big ones was I went up for the Lesser white throat, which was my first sort of out of the province twitch. And it was really cool. I mean, it took us almost 10 hours to get up and, and then 10 hours to get back. And so it's a long drive in a day. It was really cool. I mean, uh, it's such a cool experience. Went up with some great people and we had a good time. And then recently this last weekend, it just just things got mad in, uh, in Peter Maritzburg, Howick area. So uh, we went up there. There'd been a great orchestral scene, Blackneck Reeves and Kapowitia. A, and, a and those are all pretty big cases in rarity. So we went up on the Saturday you know, hoping to pick one or two of them up. I was hoping to get access to the Greater Kestrel. Um, anyway, so we went to this Black Neck Reeb spot. We were there early in the morning. It was misty. We couldn't see anything, and we waited, and eventually the mist cleared, and we picked up this Black Neck Reeb. It's really nice to compare the little. It was with a flock of little. And then we went. We got a tail, which is a great Kazedan rarity. And then we thought, well, let's go and have a look for the Blue coran which was seen like two or three months ago in the area, which is pretty rare bird for Kazedan and we were just about to leave, and I thought, let me just have a quick scan, you know, so I lifted up my binoculars half-heartedly, and then there it was. I'm sure as nights it was there. It was uh, trying to sun itself, so it was really great to see that. Then we got access to uh, this Mount Verde estate, which I'd been trying for days to get access, and we managed to meet up with Roger Hogg, and he kindly helped us to get in there, and we spent about an hour and a half looking for this bird, and we actually got in the car, and Uncle Roger said to me, you know, It's so funny how it happens. We often drive out, and and the bird's sitting on the side of the road, you know, and we're like, oh, laughing, laughing. We're getting in the car and we're driving out. And sure as nuts, we're driving along, and there this great orchestra is sitting in the tree right there. And it was incredible. So we got a few, probably it was there for about a minute, and then it flew off, did a bit of a hover for us, and then disappeared. And then myself, Nick, and Darren, who were the guys I was birding with, were almost back in Durban. For you guys who don't know the area, it's about 40 minutes away from where we'd been birding for the day. And a report came through of a pale, shining goshawk right near the blue corhan. So without even saying many words, we had turned around and we were flying back up the hill. And yeah, we we're racing along along the road and boom, we found this bird. It was so incredible. It's been one of those birds where we've always had the back of our heads, you know, how cool that'd be. You know, like apparently there was one scene here like five, six years ago and we couldn't believe our eyes. You know, it was just incredible. Such a privilege.
0: You know, that story there where you you did that quick turnaround kind of reminds me of something you said on the the Youth Birding Podcast where you spoke about, you know, why a lot of young people are not you you think are possibly not connecting with bird clubs. And I think you're a good person to ask this question to because – you are a, a person that's, that's a member of a bird club and you're a passionate member of that bird club. You're proud of your bird club. But, you know, you spoke about how a lot of times bird clubs are doing, going to the same places all the time, the same outings all the time. And and you think that possibly there's a bit of a disconnect between what younger birders are looking for and what, birding, what bird clubs have to offer. So, you know, you've spoken about the, that negative side in terms of, um, from a bird club perspective. perspective. But here's, here's the question. What do you think that bird clubs can do so they can better cater for younger birders? Because I honestly believe, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, that I know the bird club played such an important part in your birding journey. And I think when young birders are not being connected to bird clubs, I think there's something we're missing. There's this 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 passing down of knowledge that that gets missed. That gets missed. So what what do you think that bird clubs can do so that we can see young more young birders joining joining bird clubs?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would like to just start off with just saying, I mean, BirdLife Eswatini when I joined was BirdLife Port Natal. Really did a lot for my birding. When I came to Durban um, from Harding to school, I wasn't in any birding circles, and I met a lady by the name of. Uh, Sandy Dupree's Auntie Sandy, and I met her on a butterfly outing and she invited me to the club. And so sure as not the next day I was at a, the bird club outing, the same place. And it was really awesome because, you know, the bird club, you know, I, I, it, it really it really was great for my birding. It, it really, I met some amazing people and there's some people that I really look up to and I'm so grateful for that. People like Auntie Nikki, the chair lady of Bird at Tekwini, Uncle Dave Rimmer, Auntie Jenny Norman, these people all helps you know hugely in my birding so i think there's definitely an important place for bird clubs as a young person especially for me i know and i know there's some other young guys around south africa who've also had similar experiences but you know as young guys we we really love to to get out and see things you know I, i've seen so little of southern africa and i just i'm so excited to see places and i'll give you an example i mean i was just absolutely astounded when we went up sani pass I mean, I've never, ever done anything like it. It was the first time I did it like two, three weeks ago. And there was this waterfall and the whole thing was completely frozen. And I could not believe my eyes. I could not believe that there was a waterfall that was frozen. And for me, it's just so awesome to be able to go and experience different things. And so I think being a club in, in, in a large city like this, it, it's hard because there's a select nature reserves and it's difficult for, to do outings outside of the reserve because it becomes quite time consuming on the people that are running it and becomes quite exhausting on them i'm sure they are most capable of it but you know they yeah i see nikki for example she's she's got she's doing some amazing work with st lucia and so i mean i'd never ever burden her with something you know i think bird clubs there there needs to sort of be some some travel or something. In my opinion, I would like to be able to be going to Zululand with the bird club. And if, if that happened, it would just be incredible going to, you know, coming down to Harding, coming and seeing what I found and seeing those things or going up to Tunzini or, you know, that sort of thing would be great, you know? Um, but yeah, oh, the bird clubs not really done a lot. for me.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think it's also, you know, just to talk about the culture of birding, I chatted to you before we chatted to the, about this podcast and, you know i really feel my personal opinion and and here's the here's a couple of things first is i love birding i love doing trips i love all this i've done some fantastic trips but i don't i don't have the budget to do trips my budget doesn't allow me to go and chase after every rarity my work schedule doesn't always allow me to chase after i can't just at the drop of a hat say i'm i'm going to chase a bird i don't i have responsibilities that i have to take care of yet what is amazing in so for a lot of birders is the first question they ask you is oh what number what what's your what's your life list on and it's almost like that has become the holy grail of birding that has become the thing that defines you if you don't have 700 800 birds in your list you're a nothing birder and and I, you know and I think you know there's a lot of there's a lot in the birding culture I think we have to look at and I, I you know like I think it's fantastic I think you know to have to be able to chase after new birds and to add new birds to your bird list but I I don't think that that is all that makes you are a, a good birder. And I think I, I, my feeling is, is you need to bird in a way, as long as you aren't harming the birds and you aren't harming nature and you aren't harming other people around you, you need to bird in a way that, that works for you. And we need to stop defining other people by our own birding journey. So what are, what are your thoughts? Do you feel that as a twitcher, as someone who does twitch birds, do you feel that there is possibly an overemphasis on the life list in terms of how we measure birders, whether they are good or they are not?
1: Yeah, so I I, I think you've got a very valid point there. I think that there is a bit of overemphasis put on there, even though I feel that more birding in different areas, there's more experience with different species. So, you know, one does gain a, a broader knowledge. However, I don't think that's simply saying because this man has got a 600 life list, he's suddenly better than someone who's got 500. Because, I mean, I know people that do have big numbers, and some of them, um, I can quite comfortably say that there are people with with lower numbers that are probably at a higher birding standard. So I don't think it's fair to to generalize and say that people with higher lists uh, are better birders. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people will agree with that. Um, You know, some people do not get to travel much. You know, there's lots of young guys who don't have money, they can't travel, they're school-bound. But they are incredible birders in their region you go birding with them they will know every little contact call and that for me is he's a great birder you know but at the same time you also get someone who's seen 700 species but will go into his hometown and he will be quite surprised at the fact that he doesn't know some of the more common you know things there so i think i think you've got a very very valid point there
0: you know you know the thing is you know you we often speak about a lot of young birds will speak about the negative sides the negative things that come around birding and possibly also the overemphasis and i'll tell you why i say that is because it also becomes a a social economic imbalance because what happens is now is those who have who are able to travel get a big bird list and then everyone says wow she's what an amazing birder you are you are a fantastic birder you are awesome and especially amongst like I'm not tamming, but younger birders, they get like, oh my word, I'm awesome, I'm amazing. And then you get another younger birder who doesn't have parents who allow, who they can't travel, they don't have the finances travel, their parents maybe don't take them around as often, so their lifeless, lifeless doesn't grow as much. And they start to get to a place where they don't feel like they belong, in the, they, they might not feel like they belong as much in the birding community. And I think the thing about celebrating people's journey where they're at also allows our the world of birding to become more inclusive for people that are in different social e- economic brackets, I, I really think.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, I think I think people have to take each scenario for its own because there are some birders, that you know, a lot of the guys who've got those big lists, and to name a few, Trevor Hardacre. he is an incredible birder. If you look at Adam Riley, who doesn't have a huge Southern African life list, but he has got a huge world life list, he is an incredible birder. I mean, I'll send him any photo that I'm battling with for the identification and quite quickly, they'll have this, this, this and that's why it's the species. You know, another young guy, um, Daniel Ingerrat, who's who's just recently got his thousand species for his world list. And a lot of people say that he is the top young birder in South Africa and it's not because of his list, but it's because of the way that he birds. So I think every case has to be taken for
0: its own. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. So, you know, the question I want to ask you is, and this is, you've obviously got this. You you enjoy chasing after new birds. You enjoy the thrill of the twitch. But how do you keep that balance? Because you know, there's, you know, I'm sure you've met the you've met people like this where you meet them and they've got this big laugh list, but they've they've never gone deep with those birds. They're kind of like oh, that bird there ticket on the list and they kind of have this big life list. But, you know, if that person saw the bird on the list, the, the bird on the field, again, they would probably not even know what it is because they just kind of just put a tick on their list. How do you get the balance between being a twitcher and chasing after birds, but at the same time, not being shallow in your approach to birding, where you where there's still this connection to birds and to the to the birds that you get to see in the natural world around you? How do you keep that, that balance?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's all about balance. And I think that you need to to think about it for yourself and everyone will be different and i mean i i do a lot of twitching and i, I will twitch any bird in case it is that i can that i haven't got on my list and that's just and i learn a lot by doing that because i meet a lot of people but at the same time you know on holidays and that when i go back to farm i'll spend three weeks and i'll go to the same dam every single day you know i've got a big dam beautiful reed birds and i'll be there every day then hopefully i do pick up something different but i'm learning those birds that are there i'm you know, um, there's lots of African snipes. So I've been concentrating on watching those African snipes. You know, why, why are they like this? And then one day, when I do hopefully pick up a great snipe somewhere in Zululand, I know, okay, well, hang on, that's a great snipe because of this, because I know African snipes so well. So I think being a Twitcher at the same time, if you are backed up with a good knowledge of birds, it'll help you hugely. So I think I think you've got to make that balance as well. You know, it's like you can quite easily sit at home and watch your rarity, you know, your telegram group. Oh, there's a bird, I must go see that and not get out and, and bird. But yeah, I try and get out as much as I possibly can, whether it's in my garden, whether it's a local nature reserve, or whether it's ten hours away looking for a white throat. So yeah, it's all about your own personal personal
0: balance. I think just to close off, I think what really shows the balance in your birding is, and you can share the story last year at your, your dam at your farm, you, through that consistent approach to going to your dam again and again and again, you got, you actually managed to get a rarity that a lot of, a lot of birders travel to see. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny because this dam is probably 15 minutes from my home and, and on the farm and I will get in the car, I'll drive and I'll drive almost every, every day, the same route you know, whether it's in the morning, early in the evening, and I'll stop at various spots because I know that this has got potential for something. And then you stop and look, and there's an African yellow warbler and you can watch it, watch what it's doing, watch it calling. Hopefully it's like the breeding season, it'll be calling nicely and maybe there'll female interaction, you know, and then go to the next spot and sit and watch. And I suppose that's how I picked this pectoral sandpiper up. I got to one of the spots where I look over the dam and there was a bit of mudflats showing and boom, there this bird was. And I saw this bird and and I, I knew it was something different. It's funny. I've tried to create pectoral sandpipers many times, juvenile ruffs and all sorts of things. And when I saw this bird, I was like, okay, sure. That is a pectoral sandpiper. So I sent it to some people and they were like, yes, 100% pectoral sandpiper. So it was really great, you know, going and, and sitting at the dam, spending so much time there and finally being rewarded. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, it's it's going to happen. It's a, f- a funny story. I, I remember when the, there was spurring lapwing has been seen in Zim and then suddenly the one that was found in the Eastern Cape and I remember thinking to myself I'm gonna find a spurring lapwing at our dam so I drove and I was thinking okay yeah anyway I get to the dam I'm actually scanning looking for a spurring lapwing and you know the back of my mind there's no almost no chance but you know like I'm always looking for that rarity but it's because I know those areas well and I'm you know one day there will be something big big.
0: Yo, Zach, it's been awesome to chat to you. Um, I know we can chat for a lot longer and I'll get you back on the show sometime. Uh, I had a chat to you uh, I think last night or the night before and I shared with you we're looking to do some birding life get-togethers we can get togethers where we're just going to meet at some um, nature reserves and just people listen to the show and follow us on social media you can just come and meet up with us and just connect and yeah I'm, I'm you know for those there I'm, I'd love Zach just to to lead a walk on one of those and people can come meet with him and just get to see how phenomenal his knowledge of, bird, of birding is so Zach um, you signed up to lead one of the walks on one of those you've got like no choice people want to meet you bro fantastic I cannot wait look forward to seeing you all there We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders, and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Sorovsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.